You know, as I come to the pulpit this morning, it's always thrilling. It's thrilling. I'm serious. Scary, thrilling, and all, everything in between as I get the pleasure and the joy and the awesome responsibility to open God's Word to you. And we're going to do that in Colossians chapter 3, so you can turn there as I'm speaking. Colossians 3, Colossians 3.19 I couldn't help but think, as Nels was reading Solomon, Song of Solomon, we don't read that book in the church very often, unfortunately. I've only had it requested one time in any wedding service I've ever done. I thought to myself, was, I wonder if anyone's blushing. Because if you listen to the, the language in the Song of Solomon, that's a man who is enraptured in the love. He's intoxicated in the love of his bride. He loves her with a self-sacrificing love, and she, him, as she loves him and submits to him and follows his lead. And that leads us to this subject of marriage that we've been talking about over the past few weeks. And you're saying, Pastor, you're spending a lot of time on marriage. Why is that? Well, God spends a lot of ink on marriage. Likewise, we need to understand and read and process and digest all that God has for us regarding marriage. It is the institution that he founded where he would represent his love for his people and in return his people's submission and respect for their Savior. You see, we all have a vested interest. Every man, woman, and child under my voice this morning has a vested interest in the institution of marriage. It is one of the pillars of civilization, church. There's nothing less than civilization that's at stake here. It's nuclear, if you will. It's DEFCON 5. There is no more potent thing in rightly understanding than the institution of marriage. For as it goes, so goes the cultural. Hence, where we are today, right? Self-evident preaching to the choir, preaching to myself. And all that I'm going to say today regarding husbands, believe me, I could sit there and listen to myself. I have not arrived. So I don't speak as one who comes with the authority of someone who's mastered the art of husbandry, of loving my wife as Christ loves the church. I come as a servant of the Word, praying that you will be fed, encouraged, and strengthened One, for your love for the institution of marriage, and those of us who are husbands or will one day be husbands, aspire to be all that God's called us to be and empowered us to be in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read, beginning at verse 17 of chapter 3 through verse 19 of Colossians. A loving and cherishing husband. What is it? What is he to be? Verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting or becoming suitable, proper in the Lord. Husbands, agapeo, love unconditionally your wives, 
and do not be harsh or embittered with them. Thus far the reading of God's holy and infallible word. May he add his eternal blessing to it. Let us pray and seek his face. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the rain that falls from, from heaven even now as we sit under the word. May your word now fall from my mouth and may it be faithful to what you have inspired through your apostle Paul. May your people be built up not being like those tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but by being anchored in the immutable, unchanging word of the living God. That, Father, we might know something of what it means to be a bridegroom, those of us who are husbands, as we look to and worship the Lord Jesus Christ and see his love for the church. And that, Father, all of us would be attentive to this word, for we all have a stake in the institution of marriage. Bless us, we pray. We are your children. You are our Father. Come and feed us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Beloved, all marriages begin with expectations, with high expectations, right? The sky's the limit. I've never had the pleasure of marrying a couple that weren't excited, weren't full of hope and expectation at the day. I'm sure Sparky could tell us the same. But somewhere along the line, what happens is that they come to the proverbial fork in the road. They either grow or they grow bitter. The couple either grows closer in a deepening love and appreciation for one another, or they slowly grow further further apart as the disappointment and the disillusionment of unmet expectations set in. You see, saints, you've heard me say this, marriage is comparable to a garden. You will reap what you sow in your marriage. If you're intentional and devoted to it, it will flourish. On the other hand, if you neglect it or imagine that you can just put it in cruise control, right, done that, been there, got the T-shirt, all is well. Got the postcard. I sent it to mom and dad. We're doing great. See you in a couple days. Before long, what happens when you just begin to coast? Weeds. Weeds begin to creep into the marriage and begin to choke out the, the deepening love, the, the growing affection, the tenderness, the, the cherishing, the, the romance upon which the marriage started so well. You see, just as a garden needs intentionality to flourish, so does your marriage. I've never met anyone, and you've heard me say this, who ever fell into excellence. Have you ever, I want you to raise your hand. Have you ever met anyone who fell into excellence? Of course you haven't. Excellence requires diligence and self-discipline and intentionality, endeavoring to acquire it, searching for it as for silver, as for gold, like for wisdom, to pursue excellence, to be the best, to be the best at your craft, whatever that craft is, whether it's a husband or a wife or an elder or a preacher or whatever God has called you to be. Well, last week we looked at the wife's calling in marriage. Today, the husband's. 
what we're going to see is that the, like the wife's submission, the husband's love for his wife is cross-shaped. <laughs> That's what love looks like. It, it looks like a cross. It's wood. It has, has, it's, it's an emblem of, of shame and, and suffering and self-denial and, and sacrifice of one's own appetites and desires for the welfare of others. That's why the Holy Spirit tells us very succinctly, right? Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. There are two sides to this command, a positive side, love them, right? And then negatively, do not be harsh with them. Do not become embittered with them. So let's look at this text, very simple, but sublime, not simplistic, right? None of us as husbands would say this is simplistic, First, positively, husbands love your wives. After Paul's call for wives to submit to their husbands, you might have expected Paul to say, husbands, rule over your wives. As Christ rules over the church, and many husbands, unfortunately, hear and read it that way. But the Holy Spirit, the triune God, says, husbands, love your wives. You see, that's the husband's primary calling, to lead through loving your wife. You see, beloved, we must never, ever, ever, you need to write this down, decouple verse 18 from verse 19. You see, that's one of the disadvantages of taking meticulous time going through verse-by-verse exposition of the Word of God, because somehow we might divorce submission of wives from the husband's calling to love his wife. You see, that would be a great danger, hazard, warning. To do so would be in great error. You see, it's also imperative that we biblically understand exactly what Paul meant when he said, Husbands, agapeo, the verb, agape, agapeo is the verb form, love your wives. See, how does the Bible define love? You see, in our culture, love is a feeling over which you have no control, right? You get caught up in romantic love, and you're walking on clouds, existentially speaking. But the problem with this definition, when it's solely that and nothing more, is what do you do when the feelings are gone? When you're five years into the marriage and you realize, that guy's not who I thought he was. I thought I could change him. Conversely, I thought I could change her. What do you do when you define it that way? We've all heard couples who say, we're just not in love anymore. The spark is gone. The best thing now is just for us to divorce. You know, go on our own separate ways. Right? We tried, you know, it worked out for a little bit. There was some, you know, great times, but it's just nothing there anymore. You see, beloved, it's vital that we get our definition of love correct. Well, biblical love, agape love, is not primarily a feeling. It's not ephemeral. It's not somehow nebulous out there in the the ether and just sentimental. 
Well, what is it? R.C. Sproul says it's the seeking of the welfare of the other. You could listen to Pastor, or rather, Ruling Elders Hutton's sermon on 1 Corinthians 13. It's a good definition of love. But one commentator defined it this way this week. And I think it's helpful. It's a self-sacrificing, caring commitment which shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. Let me read it to you again. It's a self-sacrificing, caring commitment which shows itself in seeking the highest good in the one loved. You see, it's other-focused. It's not focused on what one gets out of it, but rather what one gives. With such, while such love will perhaps result in deep feelings, at its core, agape love, the love of the husband is called to here in Colossians 3, is about commitment. It will be seen more in the husband's actions than in his feelings. Well, let's look at it under three headings. The husband's love is a committed love. That's the first one. The husband's love is a committed or a covenant love. You see, beloved, we all know this morning, we, we can't command a feeling. Can you command a feeling? I can't. But what you can command is a commitment. I'm called by the triune God to love my wife. In God's grace, in His power, in His gospel, in His Holy Spirit, I'm going to pursue it. It's going to be the target upon which I aim my arrow. I'm going to seek to love her. I'm going to seek to be committed to her. You see, in our day, you fall in love and you marry. That was not the case in Paul's day. Most marriages in the first century were arranged. How would you like that, young ladies? Love was understood to be a coincidental occurrence, right? If you, you get married, well, if you, if you fall in love, that's great. But that's not what drove you into marriage. Rather, marriage is the context where you learn how to love. Now, did you get that? Let me say that again. Perk up. You want to be lovers? You want to learn what love's about? Then get married. That's the context. That's the cubicle. That's the petri dish. That's the lab. God puts us in to learn how to love, how to be others-focused. Husbands, today, maybe the fire's just not there. The feelings are cold. You find yourself just going through the motions, right? Maybe today you're here, and that's you who you are. You're just going through the motions. you got it in cruise control. You've been married 15, 16, 30, 40, 50 years. You're just cruising. Well, there's some good news when you define love the way God defines it, isn't it? It's good news. If it's a commitment, that means I can do it. I can endeavor to do it. I can, by God's grace, commit to love her again. In obedience, begin to choose to love her, to seek her welfare above my own. You see, when a husband's love for his wife is defined as a commitment, think about the implications. Think about that. If, 
if the husband's agapeo is defined biblically the way Paul does here as a commitment, think about the implications for that. Think what the implications for husbands. So husbands, if your marriage is flat, if it's loveless, if the spark is gone, you know whose fault it is? It's your fault. It's my fault. Because I'm the one. You're the one who's been commanded in Jesus Christ by the power of the cross, the blood that flowed, the spirit that has descended and filled you to love her, commit to her, sell out to have her, be intoxicated with her, to pursue her. But pastor, you don't understand. My wife disrespects me. God, the Holy Spirit says, love her. Oh, but pastor, I I go to work. I work 40 plus every week. I'm committed. I provide vittles. Electricity's on. We're not getting letters from Dominion saying it's going to be cut off. But she never says thank you. She's never appreciative of what I do and how I provide. The Holy Spirit tells you this morning, Love her. Love her. Love your wife. Pursue her. Remember the gospel, men. Christ loved you when you were without hope. You weren't lovely. You weren't all that in a bag of chips. My wife hates it when I say that, and I'll hear that when I get home. But it's the truth. You're nothing. You are an object of wrath, without hope, without God, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, loving and cuddling sin and lust and pride. But God, God came seeking, pursuing in a committed covenantal love for you men. Yes. He's loved you this way. He chose you, and He chose to love you. And I thought this week as I was thinking about this, I didn't even speak to my elders on Wednesday, I meant to, but just think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It, was it easy? I can't wait to go to the cross. No. Great drops of blood, he sweats. He prays, Father, if be your will, let this cup pass. But what did the Son of God do for you men? You ladies, you young people, what did he do? Not my will, but your will be done. It was the love, the commitment that drove him to Calvary for you. Because he chose to love you. He set his love on you when you were unlovely to make you lovely. That's what he did. To make you lovely. That's what love does. Love, you know, when, when you begin to be loved, it, it beautifies. It, it makes the one who's the receiving, on the receiving end of love, more beautiful, more attractive. Husbands, love your wives, for it's a 
committed love. Husbands, secondly, agapeo, love, is a self-sacrificing love. In the parallel text to the one we're reading this morning, Ephesians 5.25 says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, biblical love will mean sacrificing for your wife. As the head of the home, you're the leader. You are the leader. You're the kephale, the same word where Christ is the head, the kephale of the church. You're the kephale of the marriage. You're the head of the home. But remember this. Heavy is the head that wears the crown, as Shakespeare would say. You have a crown. You've been called to wear it. And the crown is a crown of what? A crown of thorns. That's the crown that the husband wears in the home. He wears the crown of thorns. He's the chief servant in the home. He's the leader who models for his wife and children what the Lord Jesus did for him. You're called to deny yourself, to take up your cross for your wife's highest good. Again, just as the Lord Jesus did for you. You see, most husbands are not going to be called literally to have to lay down their wives. But there are daily crosses and deaths that we must be willing to embrace every day. Areas where God is calling and will call us to lay down something, no matter how bad we want it, for the welfare of our wives. That new toy. Men love toys. Your favorite gadget, your hobby, that trip, the time with the guys, all good and right things, but are not the currency to be spent at the welfare of your children and your wife are calling you to be home, to lead by being present. That's, a, that's, that's the thing I need. I just want to be, so, I, I need to learn how to be present. Isn't that most of you? I think most of you men would say, that's what I need to learn how to do. To be present, not just be in a locale, right, a GPS, but to be present in all my humanity in Jesus Christ as, as a redeemed son, filled by the Spirit, to be present for Catherine, to be inclined toward Catherine, to, to move toward my children. Give me your heart, the proverb says to the Father. To the son. Give me your heart, son. Give me your heart. Let me have your heart. I want your heart, child. That's next week's sermon. And this is what a father is. This is what he does. He hungers and he thirsts for the heart of those entrusted to his care. We must always be ready to lay it all down for the good of our wives and families. So husbands, when you get home from work tomorrow before running to the man cave and grabbing the remote or checking in on your news feed, whatever it is for you that helps you unwind, go and ask your wife how her day was. Spend time with that woman, that beautiful Isha that God took from the side of Ish and he made her. Go and ask her. Go spend some human capital and inquire and ask her how her day was. That evening, offer to help with a folding of laundry. That's something I don't do well. 
Take the kids out for a walk. Give mom a break. Tag. Guys, I, I live in the real world with you. I'm there. I'm preaching to me before I'm preaching to you. After you listen to her heart for a while, pray with and for her. Love your wives, men. This is biblical godliness. 1 Peter 3, 7, right? If, if we don't seek to exegete, seek to understand our wives, right, what makes them tick, not just women in general as a concept, a construct, that that woman God gave you, what makes her tick? What are her loves, her likes? You see, if you do not pursue this, the Word of God goes so far to say your prayers will be hindered. God will cut you off if we fail to do this. That's what's at stake. Husbands, love your wives. A husband's love is a committed love. It's a sacrificial love. Thirdly, a husband's love is a Holy love. A holy love. Ephesians 5, 26 to 27. Christ gave himself up for the, his bride that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I think it's so important in life to understand where you're going if you're going to know and live properly on the journey to that place, wherever it is you're going. Christ telos, Christ in game for us, is to make us like himself. Every Christian, his whole objective is to make you like him. To love what he loved, to hate what he hates, to be like him. And he paid the ultimate price to secure it. He didn't do it with cryptocurrency. He didn't do it with gold. He didn't do it with land rights. He did it with the, the most precious thing that he had. And that is his own spotless, pure blood. That's what, he, that's what it cost him. He loved unto death. No greater love than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. And he laid down his life for you, men, and for you, ladies. Because we all have a vested interest in marriage, don't we? So husbands, in the same way Christ is calling you to seek your wife's holiness, to seek her Christ-likeness. Maybe you're here this morning, you say, yeah, I've always been telling my wife she needs to be more Christ-like. FYI, hello, that's not how it works. We do not make our wives more Christ-like as instruments in the hand of the Redeemer by lecturing them. That's not how it's done. Speaking a word of truth, seasoned with salt, in a correct tone, we bring instructions to bear when we need to do that. And we have to do that because we're called to lead 
And nature abhors a vacuum. And if we don't lead, someone else will lead. We have to step up in leadership and lead with our words and the way that we speak our instruction. But we do not conform them to the image of Jesus Christ by lecturing. Trust me, as one who's tried and face-planted. Right? I've tried. But rather, as our wives and children see us growing in godliness, pursuing Christ and His Word, modeling before them what true biblical manhood looks like, then in grace God begins to shape and to mold us all, husband and wife and children, all into what God in His masterful wisdom and artistry has called us to be and to image Jesus. Remember now, and sacrificial loving those who are our responsibility that God used to grow us up. What did Jesus do? The most, one of the most incredible texts in all of Scripture is John 13. The very night before he's going to be crucified, Jesus, we're told, knowing who he is and where he's going, took off his garments and put a towel around him, began to bend down and wash feet. He began to serve. <laughs> who is this God? You hear me say, but who is it? He's the living God. This is what he does. He's a servant at heart. That's who God is. He's a servant leader. He's the king who lays down his, pe- lays down his life for his people. We don't write stories like that. <laughs> but that's the story God has written. You see, men are the spiritual leaders and examples in their homes. It's not the wife's responsibility to be the primary discipler and instructor and handle that. Well, no, it's the father's instructed to wash his wife with the word. To bring up his children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Kevin Young, in his wonderful little book, says the husband's role is, is marked with just this simple word, let's. He's the initiator. He says, let's pray, honey. Let's read the word of God, honey. Let's, let's go. To Sunday evening worship, honey. Let's. Let's. He's always out front. He's leading through his example as well as his words. Do we men take the lead? Or are we those who put our wives in a no-win situation by putting them in the position where they're always having to nudge us to do what God has called us to do? Your wife can't win like that. Be the man. Be the man. How about attendance in the means of grace? Who leads? Who's leading in your home? Are we discerning in the way we lead and what we watch? Now that one's going to get... Who decides? Something comes across the screen, you go, that's not edifying. That's not pure. That's not noble. That is of not good report. That's not honoring to my Savior. Honey, we need to cut this off. That's trash. That's trash. That's a demonic origin. I'm not going to watch it. I don't want you to watch. I'm protecting her. I'm leading. I'm out front. 
I'm doing what God calls me to do. Man, this is, this is, this is what it means to be biblical. This is what it means to be godly. A biblical love is a committed love. It's a self-sacrificing love. It's a holy love. And men, remember this. We can love like this because we have first been loved by Jesus Christ. And there's, there's no condemnation for you in Jesus Christ now. You're in him. You're set free to go and be a sinner saved by grace because it's all been paid for. The love of God is constraining you to go out and walk in obedience now. Yes, it's your duty, but your duty in Jesus Christ has become your highest joy. Oh, to have a Savior like this. Oh, to serve Him. Only to have but one life to live for Jesus Christ. Oh, what a shame. What a pity. Not to have 10,000 tongues to sing my great Redeemer's prayer. This church is biblical Christianity. It's the real deal. Because the triune God saves real sinners. Not hypothetical sinners. Real sinners. And he sets them free to go live in the joy of obedience. Writing his law on their heart. And giving them the spirit to go out and walk in new gospel obedience to that word. No greater joy than to serve this God. Do you know him today? Do you know Jesus Christ? Not do you know about him, but do you know him? Are you trusting him and him alone? Well, secondly, negatively, there's the positive, love your wives. Negatively, husbands, do not be harsh with your wives. In addition to loving We're commanded not to be harsh with their wives. New American Standard translates it this way, and I believe he captures the the original quite well. Do not become embittered against them. So it's in the passive. So it's something that happens to you. you. You can become embittered. Well, how does this happen? Before I expound that, let me say this, though. The word harsh or embitter reflects something ingested that has a bitter taste. It's used in Revelation 10, 9. It's kind of like unsweetened cocoa powder. Remember that as a kid, you're thinking, well, it says Hershey's on it. It's got to be good. And then you taste it. And it's, it's like, how could anything with the name Hershey on the side of it taste so bad? That's it. It's, it's like repulsive. That, that's, that's the sense. But husbands, bitterness of spirit takes place when you focus on the sins and shortcomings of your wife. You find yourself majoring on all her imperfections. And usually behind bitterness lies resentment and disappointment of unmet expectations, which manifests itself how? In anger. In outburst. Being curt and rude. Husbands, bitterness happens when our authority in the home is challenged. And rather than choose to lead by loving our wives, we respond in resentment and harshness because things did not go the way we wanted. We feel disrespected and underappreciated, so we lash out. Isn't this exactly what happens? 
But being disrespected does not give us warrant to lash out and become embittered. Rather than falling into bitterness, we overcome by choosing to love. And Christian, you can choose to love because Christ has purchased not only the forgiveness of sins for you, He's also purchased the power to put sin to death. Sin shall not be your master now, Christian. You've been baptized into Jesus Christ. Sin's dominion has been broken. You can go out and be who God calls you to be. You see, that's the joy of all of his exhortations. Though they cut us, they cut that they might heal. You see, he wounds, he, he spanks us as children, and then he gives us his grace and his spirit enables us to repent and to try anew, afresh, to walk in the new obedience he calls us to. Think about this. Think about how many times a day we fail to submit and respect Jesus Christ. How does he respond? He describes himself in the Word of God, only one place that I know of, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that is the God-man Jesus Christ. He describes himself as follows, as gentle and lowly of heart. God incarnate self-describes himself as lowly and gentle of heart. He doesn't lash out in anger, in bitterness, Resentment. As Calvin says, thou hast the true and perfect gentleness. No harshness hast thou, no bitterness. Husbands, when your wife disappoints you and you will disappoint her, make sure you keep short accounts. Deal with it. Don't suppress it. Man up. Don't put it off. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Because if you let that anger begin to put deposits in your heart. You know what's going to happen? You're going to get bitter. All the romance will be gone. It'll wither away. It'll dry up like a weed. It'll be gone. There'll be no fruit of joy, peace, love. It'll just be nothing. There'll be nothing there. And you'll be 40 years into it. I heard, I read this on uh, Drudge Report recently. You know the highest divorce rate? Now get this, church. The highest divorce rate in the United States is among those who've been married 40-plus years. You're thinking to yourself, that's insane. But it makes sense, right? The kids leave. No one's there. It's just you and mom, you and your wife. Cultivate it, nurture it, marriage fall apart. You haven't been intentional. You haven't strove to cultivate it, nurture it, and to weed it, and to fertilize it, to care for it, to cherish it, to, to love it. And then before long, there's nothing there. You see, if you don't properly deal with it, you begin to store up resentment. We've all known people who blame others for their unhappiness, right? I can't tell you how many times couples come into my office and the first word out of their mouth is that husband of mine. They never begin with, you know, I'm a big sinner and I need a big Savior and a big gospel. No, that, they're not in my office. Those folks don't come in my office. The folks who come in my office and end up in my office are those who go, it's that woman you gave me. It's the serpent. 
who deceived me. It's always someone else's fault. Blame shifting, right? Like shape shifters. Right? We're blame shifters. It's always someone else's fault. That marriage that began with such hopes and high expectations is now characterized not by grace, but by bitterness. Always bickering at one another. All the tenderness and love is all gone. Husbands, when this happens, there's no cherishing going on. It's a far cry from the Song of Solomon, right? Listen to Song of Solomon. How beautiful are you, my darling? Your voice is sweet. Your face is lovely. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes. God the Holy Spirit inspired that church. That's God's Word. Man, I say this to you because we're the thermostats in the home. If it's too hot or too cold or it's just right, you see, husbands, as we go, so goes the family. That's the reality. That, that's the card you've been dealt. I don't know. I don't want to be the leader. I'm sorry. You shouldn't have gotten married. But now you're married. You've got to lead. You lead through sacrificial loving. The key to overcoming is by remembering that neither you nor your wife are perfect, right? You're called to love the wife you have, not the one you idealize and romanticize about. Love that woman, the one that sits beside you this morning. She's there, put your arm around her. Get close to her. Men, it's up to you to lead. Lean into her. I'm still learning. I have not arrived See, we do this just as Christ did with his bride. When we were enemies of God, Christ died. Don't get angry, right? Don't get embittered. Don't check out. Love your wives. A committed, sacrificial, holy love. So today when you get home, rather than expecting to be served, serve and be ready to give your life for your bride just as Christ did. Husbands, the Lord Jesus has loved you with a committed, sacrificial and holy love. We're now in union with him to imitate his love and the way we love our wives. If you're here this morning and you're not ready to commit like this, men, don't get married. Don't get married. Wives, if you're not ready to lovingly submit to a man who sacrificially loves you, I can't imagine there is such a case. Do you know of any? I'll wait for you after church. You can tell me at the back. I think as we as men begin to lead in this way, I think they're going to follow. Perfectly, no. But God made them to follow. We're the heads. We lead, they follow. We sacrifice self. We lay down our toys, our agenda for them in a committed, sacrificial, holy love. Let me conclude with this. J. Robinson McQuilkin was a man of faith. He was the president of Columbia International University. 
Mark knows who he is. In 1990, he had to prematurely resign from his vocation as president to care for his wife, Muriel. You see, Muriel, and this will happen to all of us eventually, some disease. Muriel, though, happened to have Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is a, is a pretty, pretty big cross. There are crosses that we're all going to call, be called to carry when we go across the Jordan to the heavenly homeland. But Alzheimer's is one of the bigger ones. I've seen it. He had to resign, though. He writes in his journal that during his last two years at the seminary, that it became increasingly difficult to leave Muriel at home. You see, Muriel was content as long as she was with her husband. Without him, she was distressed and panic-stricken. <laughs> Muriel was his best friend. She was his. <laughs> Dr. McWilkin would walk to and from the office every day. He lived very close, kind of, imagine Bill, kind of like the University of Richmond. The president lives close to the campus there. It was about a mile uh, round trip, you know, half mile going, half mile coming back. He says, Mara would often try to follow him to the office. Seeking him, she would sometimes make the trips ten times a day. Ten times a day. When Dr. McQuilkin would come home, he would take her shoes off at night only to find her feet bloodied from all the walking. He knew at that moment he could no longer be the president of the seminary. He longed to be. He longed to be that leader, the president of the seminary, the college. In 1990, he resigned from his care, his presidency to care for his bride. You see, men, that's leadership. That's leadership. He willingly laid it all down to serve her, to sacrifice for her, to care for her. And church, now I want you to listen. You are such faithful listeners, and I praise God for you. I love you. Now listen to this. If you are married here today and you live long enough, this will be your opportunity as well. Somewhere along the way, each one of us, male, female, husband, wife, somewhere along the line is going to be called to take up the cross that Mr. Dr. McQuilkin took up. That's just the way it is. That's how it works. Unless God simultaneously takes you both to heaven together, probability is that you're going to outlive your spouse. You're going to have an opportunity because that's what God gives his children. They're really not even trials. I mean, yes, they are. Paul uses that language. They're light and momentary. Mr. Friend and I were talking about that today. But really, if you think about it, what are trials? They're just opportunities. Opportunities to what? To trust him, to trust the Father, to trust the nail-scarred Savior. I've got to trust Him. That's all I can do. I have, I've run out of other resources. I have nowhere else to go. And if you live long enough, you'll find yourself in that position. 
Dr. McQuilkin says the response was overwhelming. And he says this in his diary. He says, it was a mystery to me why so many people were responding this way. Until an oncologist who lives constantly with dying people told me, now listen to this, men. Almost all women stand by their men, but few men stand by their women. What an indictment. In dying to self and living to serve his wife, Mr. McWilkin became a model and leader of men. He was a loving and cherishing husband. He cherished her. He valued her. He prized her. He loved her. Really. Husbands, in Jesus Christ, love your wives. And do not be harsh with them. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you are the living God. That your discipline is sweet, it is good. Oh, Father, that you do not leave us in our sin, but that you justify us, that you might sanctify us, that one day you will glorify us. Oh, Father, no matter where we are in that process of sanctification, I pray today we will hear what the Spirit is saying. Whether we're husbands or not, we'll all learn to know that love is a commitment, and that when we say we love another, we pursue sacrificially their welfare, what's best for them, as best is defined by the Word of God. Not what makes us feel good, but what makes and glorifies our Father who is in heaven. Jesus, we are failures. We are sinners who need real blood on a real cross and a real Savior. And we thank you that you have given all of the above. We pray in your name. Amen.